advantage I found Couldn't find a better fit for them, along with my crown And since the baton was passed, I've been down Cause failing's not an option, and dad is not a noun, not at all Welcome, welcome to another episode of Dad Is Not A Now. My name is Ishmael, changing the narrative for men of color fatherhood, as well as changing the narrative on the things I care about. And today, what I want to talk about is the situation that's going on in the Middle East. Um, you have the situation with Israel and Palestine. Um, to me, personally, um, what's missing from this conversation is the humanization of the people of Palestine. Um, and I can just... I can't imagine being a dad um, going through the rubble looking for your kids, calling out for your kid, not hearing their voices. And so um, today I'm truly honored to have a guest on to talk about how and why are we in this situation today? It Because everything has its context. And so I'm truly honored to have Dr. Zachary Forster with me um how you doing sir i'm doing well and thanks so much for having me on no problem at all my first question to you because i ask all my guests because i'm all about mental health how's your heart it's been a tough month um look i'm i i was in israel palestine just as things blew up in fact i was in gaza the week before uh, the Hamas attacks on October 7th was in Tel Aviv when rockets started falling down on that city. Um, I have many friends in Palestine and in Israel. Uh, my family's Jewish. And so for all those reasons, uh, I've had a very, very heavy heart over the past month. So thanks for asking about that. No, no, no problem. And, and thank you for sharing because I want this um, conversation to be a place for people to be vulnerable you know, and I think that's important, especially as men, men of color, that we need a place to go to to feel vulnerable. Um, like, just tell me a little bit of your credentials before we get into deep into the conversation. Yeah, certainly. I, like I said, I grew up in a, in a Jewish environment. And so I went to Jewish schools and Jewish summer camps and Jewish youth groups. And so that got me really interested in Israel. And uh, that led me to do... Um, to visit Israel many times and, and in the course of many visits grew more interested in, in Palestine and the Palestinians and in Arabic, which led me to do graduate studies first in Arab studies at Georgetown and then did a PhD at Princeton in Near Eastern studies, focusing on Palestinian history. And since then been writing uh, about pa Palestine for many years, producing videos uh, about Palestine for many years. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm just an observer uh, of the situation like anyone else and trying to uh, help people understand uh, the historical context to the current situation. And like, talk about, because you had your dissertation, the invention of Palestine. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so Palestine is an idea in our heads. It's not a physical or chemical reality in the real world. What do I mean by that? Um, if you're a chemist, you uh, you can't understand what Palestine is. If you're a biologist or a physicist, Palestine doesn't have any physical or chemical manifestations. 
it's just an idea. Um, and so historians can, can study Palestine. Um, social scientists can study Palestine. Humanists can study Palestine. Um, and, and so that's what I did. And, and with my goal being to understand when people uh, in history use this term, when they called the place Palestine, and when did they identify as Palestinian. And so my dissertation is really a bird's eye view of those, uh, uh, trying to answer those questions. And so I started in the, in the ancient Near East when the word Palestine first en enters the historical record, first with Egyptian hieroglyphic sources and then Assyrian sources and, of course, in, in the biblical sources, and then how the, the name Palestine goes from the ancient world uh, to the Greek world and then from the Greek world to the Roman world and then the Byzantine world and then the Arab world um, and then from Arabic goes into uh, all the modern Eastern and Western languages that we, we, we have today. And so it's really trying to trace that evolution of the name Palestine, but also the idea of Palestine. Like, what did people think about it? What were its borders? Did they care about it? Did they write histories about it? Did they write geographies about it? And really my focus is starting with um, you know, the Islamic conquest in the 7th century, trying to understand what was the role of Palestine in the early Islamic period, and then what happened to Palestine over the course of the millennium from the 10th century when Palestine fell out of use at the administrative level to the 20th century when it came back into use with the British Mandate for Palestine uh, in, in, in the 1920s. And really trying to understand what happened to this term over the course of those thousand years, um, who used it, in what context, where, when, and why. And then ultimately, I would say the focus is really um, you know, in the 19th century when Palestine gets popular again in the Middle East, and you start to see many history and, geog and geography books written about Palestine. And then in the late 19th century, when Arabs in Palestine start to identify again as Palestinian, and then trying to explain how that new identity, the Palestinian identity, how it spreads in the early 20th century. And I end my story in 1948. Um, you know, d d um, and really, so I would say it's really a bird's eye view, um, trying to understand kind of the evolution of the idea of Palestine, as well as the uh, the origins and development of a Palestinian identity. And I think that's the important thing is like how you marriage the two of identity and land. Um, and through identity and land, give birth to language, culture, music, food. Can you kind of give us an insight of that time when it comes to um, culture around that time? Yeah, so I think that... You know, what, what I'm trying to do with my study of a Palestinian identity is really trying to understand what distinguishes a Palestinian identity from these other identities that existed in Palestine before it, right? Because, of course, people had identities in Palestine before they were calling themselves Palestinians. They were calling themselves, you know, uh, Jerusalemites and Jaffans and Gazans. So they had city-based identities. They were, uh, they identified uh, strongly with our families. So the Khalidis or the Nablusis, or the Husseinis, um, or the Nimrs. So you have all these, uh, or the Zaydanis, right? So you have all these family identities. Um, then, of course, you have religious identities, Jewish, Muslim, uh, um, <coughs> Christian. Um, so, so really what I'm trying to do in, in, in my study of a Palestinian identity is ask myself, what differentiates Palestinian from a city identity or uh, an ethnic identity like Arab or a family identity um, or, or a religious identity? And what I settle on is that a Palestinian identity is an identity based around a place. Um, now, of course, city-based identities are also identities based around places, but there's a few key differences between a city identity and a Palestine identity or a Palestinian identity. The Palestinian identity 
is different because Palestine is a really, really big place. Uh, most cities, you could walk around, certainly in the 19th and early 20th centuries, you could probably walk from one end to the city uh, to the other end of the city in a few hours. You could stand up on a mountain and see the whole city. So it's easy to visualize. It's easy uh, to, um, you don't have to imagine it. It, it, it. You know, you can walk around it in a whole and, and, and see the entire city in a day or two, right? So it doesn't require a whole lot of imagination. Um, you, and, and so you can, and you can also see it on a map pretty easily. Like, whereas again, Palestine, a Palestine identity, Palestine is a much bigger place. It's so big that we can't see it with our own two eyes. Even if we got up on the tallest mountain in Palestine, it's just too big to see. So it's too, so it requires, so it's an, it's an imaginary identity. Um, it, it, there, there are no borders. Cities oftentimes have walls around them. Whereas a Palestine thing, there are no borders. There are no wall. I mean, this is before an era when there were, now there are walls, but they didn't used to be. Um, right. But, you know, so, I think for all those reasons, it require a Palestine identity thus requires things like maps, things like history books about Palestine to help us understand what it is, a geography books about Palestine to help us understand what it is. So what I do is try and say, when you start to get maps proliferating around Palestine, when you start to get history and geography books written about Palestine, and then ultimately when people start to use the name Palestine in organizational names, in institutions' names, um, like bookstores, like scouting troops, um, like you know agricultural associations, those things then give Palestine um, a sense of realness to people. It, they can see it on a map. They can see it in, in a name, on a sign. They can re pick, up, pick up a book and read about its history and geography. And those are the things that give Palestine, it makes Palestine seem real, even though, like we said, it's imagined. And yeah. I think that's when you start to see people identifying with it. And then ultimately, there's another step, uh, which is once people think it's real and they start identifying it, then when do they start to really care about it? When right. do they start to say, you know, you know, I will die for Palestine? You know, when, when does it when does it get get this like political identity? And and I think that is is another step, and that also happens, I think, in in, in the early twentieth century. And that's kind of how I would tell the story of the origins of a Palestinian identity in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. And kind of get into the um, the political, because you. You have um, people that want their own state, right? Because before that, I think the first average state was Syria. I could be wrong, right? Or, or, or am I right? Yeah, you're exactly right. In the during World War One, you have the Arab Revolt, and then uh, you know um, you have a, an Arab state founded in Damascus in 1918. That's exactly right. And they saw that, and they're like, "We want this for Palestine." And so, kind of take me into that story of how. It kind of went sideways. Yeah. So, um, so in it, you know, the Ottoman Empire is a multi-ethnic empire. It's a multi-religious empire, and it's governing over what is today Turkey, you know, uh, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, Palestine. It's governing over the Gulf, what is today Saudi Arabia and Iraq, um, and and as far as Yemen. Um, and so, you know, it's it, so this is large empire, and it also is governing parts of, um, you know, uh. Um, you know the, the the Turkey Turkey in, in in Europe, so you have this big empire, and it's multi ethnic and multi religious, and in World War One that empire comes uh, collapse uh, comes crashing down um, it, it, when <clears throat> the uh, the the Ottoman Empire joins the German war effort, and of course Germany loses World War One, and so um, in the aftermath of the war, you basically have all these you know colonial powers that divvy up different parts of the empire. Uh, 
right? So Britain takes over what became Jordan and Palestine. France uh, takes over Lebanon and Syria. Britain also takes over Iraq. There's uh, essentially a kind of, um, you know, uh, an, an independence movement in the Gulf, in which leads to the establishment of Saudi Arabia. Turkey is a different story. The colonial powers wanted to break up Turkey, but you have this guy, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, who establishes an, a national movement and raises an, ar an army and fights off the colonial powers in Turkey and, and establishes a Turkish nation state. So in different parts of the empire, you have different things happening. But in the case of Palestine... Right, the British, who had already occupied Egypt in 1882, so they're just on the, on the southern border. They invade Palestine in, in November 1917, conquer Jerusalem in December 1917, uh, and then the rest of Palestine in 1918. And so they establish a British, uh, essentially a British colonial state in Palestine. They get approval from the League of Nations to establish a mandate there. And the goal of the British mandate for Palestine is to... Um, is to um, facilitate Zionist immigration and Zionist land purchases in Palestine, right? Of course, this is against the will, the political will of the vast majority of the people of Palestine who were asked by an American commission, the King Crane Commission in 1919, do you support Zionism? Do you support the uh, Zionist program? 85% of the people of Palestine, uh, the Arab Palestinians of Palestine, they said, no, we do not support Zionism. The British didn't care. They uh, established the British colonial state anyways with uh, the explicit goal of transforming Palestine from an Arab country into a Jewish country. And I think that helps you understand the source uh, of, of the conflict and the source of, uh, uh, I, I would say, um, the disenfranchisement of the Palestinian people, which is that in the aftermath of the war, the idea of, you know, this, you know, the, you have Woodrow Wilson's famous 14-point speech, self-determination, the idea that na the nations of the world should be entitled to national self-determination, and that happened in many parts of the world, in Eastern Europe, uh, in the Balkans, but it did not happen in Palestine. Right. Instead of having national self-determination for the, for the native inhabitants of the land, instead there was a different idea which uh, we, we get into why it is that the British decided to adopt the Balfour Declaration and, and decided to transform Palestine from Arab to Jewish. But that was essentially the plan. And that's exactly what they did. And so over the course of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, they facilitated Jewish immigration. They changed the land laws and the property laws to make it easier for Jews to buy up land. Um, they themselves you know, uh, had quotas every year and allowed many Zion and, and you know, encouraged Zionists to migrate from Europe to Palestine. Um, and so... I think ultimately that 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 is kind of the history that helps you understand the source of Palestinian disenfranchisement from the 1920s to the 1940s. And I think that's an important thing because I think it gives it context, as well as when you think about Europe, it was a lot of anti-Semitism in Europe around that time. And so this was their way to drive a lot of Jewish um, born in Europe out of Europe. And so. I could be wrong, but they had three choices. It was Uganda, Argentina, and Palestine. Those were the three um, locations. And the choice was Palestine because a, uh, a religious historical um, um, background of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in the early, uh, excuse me, in the late 19th century, uh, many Zionist thinkers in Europe were debating where to establish this Jewish state, um, right? Because recall that Zionism is a European um, movement, primarily in the in the in the first decade or two, and 
all these European Jews are asking themselves, okay, we want to establish a Jewish state, that much we're sure of. Where should we establish it? And there were some of these proposals like Uganda, like Argentina, right? Um, very quickly, though, you know, the, the consensus was Palestine for the reasons you stated, right? It, you know, it's it, it, there was no other place in the world where you could actually can compel Jews to move to, where you could convince them to pack up their belongings and, and move to. Palestine was the obvious choice. Um and so, yeah, that 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 is ultimately what they settled on, and um, and and where Jews started to move to in, in larger and larger numbers in the 20th century. And we'll get into like when did the early phases of the dehumanization of Palestinian begin? Because I think that plays a important role in the conversation. Because at the end of the day, it's not about religion; it's about land. It's like who deserved to be on the land. Um, do Palestinian Palestinians that's been there 75 years or longer than that, do they have the right to the land as their Jewish neighbors? Yeah, so the way I would tell that story would be that, like we said, they <clears throat> um the, the the British mandate for Palestine was fundamentally anti-democratic uh because it rejected uh the political will of the overwhelming majority. We're talking 85, 90% of the population. Um, and so over the course of the next 20, 20, 30 years, from the 1920s to the 1940s, uh, the demographic char character of Palestine is changing. And by 1948, Palestine is no longer 90% uh, Palestinian Arab. Uh, it's only two-thirds Palestinian Arab, one-third Jewish. And, and then the British decide to to abandon Palestine as they decided to abandon all their colonies around the world. And all of a sudden, uh, and, and so obviously a war breaks out, right? Because these two, two communities had been essentially at, at, at war um, for the past already decade or two. Um, and so war breaks out in Palestine. Um, and over the course of, of that war from, let's call it, you know, late 1947 until late 1948, um, Zionist forces... Uh, expel something like 750,000 Palestinians. Now, when I say expel, what I really mean is that after the war, they didn't let any of them come back home. Um, because there were many reasons why Palestinians left, Palestinians left their homes during the war. In many cases, there were, you know, many, I would say hundreds of thousands were in fact expelled by gunpoint, um, especially in places like Rumla and Lod, along the coast in places like Tantura, and then in the Galilee, you know, many villages in the Galilee were depopulated. Um, and so, um, and so there were many uh, for forceful expulsions, but there were also many hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who left their homes for the reasons everyone is going to leave their homes during a wartime, because no one wants to get caught in the crossfire. There's shortages of food. Uh, um, there's violence. And so you, you, you leave and then you come back at the end of the war. And by the way, many tried to come back at the end of the war. In fact, in just a year or two after the war in 1949 and 1950, um, many thousands, if not tens of thousands of Palestinians uh, who, wound, who wound up as refugees in places like Gaza and the West Bank and in Lebanon, they tried coming back to their homes, you know, to reclaim property, to see family, uh, to harvest crops. And, 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 and in just a year and a half after the war, uh, Israeli forces uh, killed more than a thousand defenseless unarmed Palestinians trying to return. So when I say they expelled 750,000 Palestinians, what I really mean is they didn't, they didn't let any of them come back home after the war. And so I think that's really, you know, when talking about, you know, Palestinian history and trying to understand sort of the source and the origins of today's fighting in, in Gaza and in Israel and in Southern Israel, I think you have to understand that 
the two thirds of the population of Palestine was was expelled um, and was really ethnically cleansed from their homes in 1948. And that is kind of really, I would say, the starting point of the modern conflict over Palestine, which is you have all these Palestinian refugees who are being denied the right to come home. And lo and behold, what do you know? Some of them pick up arms to fight for that right because they did not believe they lost the legitimate right to live in Palestine just because they were violently ethnically cleansed from it. And so over the course of the next 10 years in the 1950s, you have basically these border wars in which militants, Fedayeen in Arabic, they pick up arms and raid towns in, um, you know, in, in Israel. Um, and, and so that's, I would say, the first kind of really phase of the, of the Israel-Palestine war. Um, and, then, and then by the late 50s, you have Yasser Arafat, who is uh, you know, uh, a young Palestinian refugee, first who, who winds up in Gaza and then you know, in Egypt and Gaza, and then is forced out of Gaza in the 50s in, in some of these retaliations. I mean, the very reminiscent of the, the, the current retali retaliatory uh, actions taken in Gaza. But you know, um, he, he winds up in, uh, in the Gulf. And, and, and founds an organization called Fatah in 1959. And that organization becomes Israel's most, most formidable adversary for four decades. Right. So you have these Palestinians and groups in exile, like the PLO that's founded in 1964, like PFLP, like DFLP, and they're carrying out attacks on, on Israeli targets inside Israel as well as in Europe um, for many decades. And that kind of gets us through, let's say, to the 1980s, when I would say the character uh, of the Palestine question really changes when you went with the outbreak of the first intifada in 1987, when it's Palestinians in the I and we, we sort of skipped over the 1967 war. But, um, you know, basically that kind of gets us up to, to, to um, you know, to the 1980s. And I'm happy to sort of pick up that conversation wherever, wherever you like. No, no, go to the um, 19 that that was it the six day war it, it's 67. Yeah, go, 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 go. Give me a kind of uh, our listeners a little landscape of that because I think that plays a critical role in the, in the current situation we're in. Yeah, exactly. So, like I was saying, you have all of these um, militant groups in exile, like the PLO, um, uh, like PFLP and DFLP. They're all uh, carrying out attacks against Israel, and Israel is obviously retaliating against them in Jordan. Um, and Lebanon. And, but at the same time, in 1967, Israel conquers the West Bank and Gaza and, and occupies and has been occupying those territories ever since, since 1967, so for 56 years. And the first, during the first 20 years of Israel's occupation of those territories, it kills something like 630 Palestinians. So about 32 Palestinians every year for 20 years, right? This is before Hamas. This is before there are rockets flying into Israel. This is before there are any terrorist organizations in the occupied territories. Israel is militarily occupying a Gaza and the West Bank. And, um, and so we're talking regular land confiscations, uh, regular home demolitions, uh, political arrest, checkpoints, uh, <clears throat> Uh, um, you know, um, fines. It's it's a brutal military regime, right? You're, it's like the people in Gaza and West Bank are being controlled by a government that they don't have any say in. They're not allowed to vote for the people that control their lives. And eventually what happens after 20 years of this is an outbreak, is a revolt, a nonviolent revolt. Um, you know, in 1987, you get a Israeli truck driver that kills four Palestinians in Gaza. And this is the spark that explodes that that leads to this explosion known as the first uprising the first intifada in which over the course of the next four five six years um israel slaughters 
1,200 Palestinians. And Palestinians, in, re in response, kill something like 100 and less, uh, something like 150 Israelis, mostly soldiers. Whereas, of course, most of the Palestinian casualties are civilians, most of them children. And so, you know, and, and during the first year of that uprising, in 19, really from the late 1987 to 1988, you know, Israel kills 100, Israel kills 140-something Palestinians in Gaza and suffers zero casualties, right? So it's a nonviolent protest, mostly kids throwing stones at tanks um, and, and Israelis with M16s who fire back with lethal force and kill, like I said, 140 Palestinians in the first year. And I think this grotesque violence, a brutality, especially, again, against children, especially against unarmed children, especially against young children. In fact, Yitzhak Rabin, then defense minister of Israel in the late 1980s, gave an order, and he told, and he told his soldiers, break the bones of the Palestinian kids. Wow. And, and about 20% of the kids who had their bones broken were, less, were under the age of five. Wow. You had four- and five-year-old kids getting their bones broken by by Israeli soldiers. And I think it's this brutality that leads to uh, the transition of this previously what was an Islamic charity um, known as Al-Mujamma Al-Islami. It transitions from a charity organization which had previously focused on you know, uh, funding orphanages and after-school programs and religious preaching and social services. It transitions from a charity to a militant organization and, and becomes what, what we now know as Hamas, right. the, the, um, the, the organization that carried out the attacks on October 7th. But I think it's that violence in the first intifada that radicalizes them. And so the first um, attack they carry out on Israeli um, uh, on an Israeli military target is 1989. Um, you know, a recall, of course, in 1988, they passed this charter that says, you know, um, uh, we're committed to the destruction of Israel. In, in 1989, they carry out their first attack on an Israeli military target. They kill two Israeli soldiers. And then, but it's not until 1990. Uh, in December 1990, they they carry out an attack on Israeli civilians. But again, like I said, I think it was the 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 brutality of Israel's response to this nonviolent uprising that radicalized Hamas and led them to start carrying out attacks uh, against Israeli civilians in the 1990s. And that kind of brings us to Oslo. And you know, go go ahead. I, I saw you're about no, to no, 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 definitely, definitely, no, no. I I think that's an important thing because again, that bring it gives context to the history because again. No one's going to radicalize out of nowhere. It has to be something that create this, this whole of extremeness, you know, of, of having identity and having purpose. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's important. I think, again, that, that brings more to the conversation. And again, what I worry about is that when you want to challenge policy, when you challenge policy, it becomes a terminology when it says anti-Semitic, but it's not. You know, you're not saying the people of Israel is just the people that power that's making the decisions that's impacting the people in in Israel as well as the people in Pal in Palestine. Yeah, it's really unfortunate that that, that these accusations of anti-Semitism are thrown around so much. Um, in fact, there's a concerted effort to conflate criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. You have an organization called the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, I believe. Um, and they put out this a definition of anti-Semitism. Um, 
And they're trying to get governments and universities and institutions around the world to adopt this definition, this to, to make it a legal definition. Um, which, again, if you look at the definition of anti-Semitism, it's like you can't say all these things about Israel, you right. know? And I'm like, wait, hold on one sec. Hold on one sec. What does criticism of Israel have anything to do with anti-Semitism? I mean, these are unrelated historical phenomena. You have many anti-Semites who are raging Zionists, okay? So people who despise Jews, who believe that in the end of days, Jews are all going to burn in hell, who commit anti-Semitic attacks, who are actually very um, Zionist, who who support the state of Israel and send it money. And this is, by the way, honestly, what I would describe as the largest, uh, uh, I would say Israel's greatest support in the United States comes from this community, the evangelical community in the United States. Now, of course, I'm not saying all evangelicals are anti-Semites, certainly not. Um, The vast majority are not. But we're talking tens of millions of people and some percentage of them have these eschatological beliefs in which they believe at the end of days, Jews are all going to wind up in Palestine and burn in hell for not accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And these are Israel's strongest supporters. And I would describe those eschatological beliefs as very problematic, and I would describe them as anti-Semitic. So anyways, the idea that anti-Semitism and and, and criticism of Israel are the same thing is absolutely nonsense. At the same time, as as you have all these Zionist anti-Semites, you also have many, many Jewish anti-Zionists, among whom I, I would describe myself among them. Many Jews who you know uh, that you have religious Jewish anti-Semites who believe that who are Orthodox Jews, you, you know they are very devout Jews, um, and they believe that it's forbidden in, in Jewish law to hasten the coming of the of the Messiah, um, and they believe that by moving to Israel and, and 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 establishing a Jewish state, that you're actually doing that. You're you're trying to hasten. You're trying to pull forward the future pull forward the coming of the Messiah, which is against Jewish law. And so for that reason, they actually reject Zionism. These are Orthodox Jews. Then you have obviously many secular Jews like myself who believe that a state should be a state of all of its citizens and a state should serve the interests of its citizens and a state should privilege no religious or ethnic group ahead of any other religious or ethnic group. And so for that reason, they oppose Zionism. And and so you have many different types of Jewish anti-Zionists Again, so the, the, and so so I mean I'll, I'll I'll pause there, but basically again the idea that you know you're being anti-Semitic for criticizing Israel is a dangerous idea for two reasons. Number one, sorry about uh, I said I would pause, but for, for no, number it, it's dangerous for two reasons. Number one, it's it's watering down the the word anti-Semitism, right? If now anti-Semitism means you're you think Israel shouldn't be ethnically cleansing Palestinians, if that's labeled anti-Semitic. Well, then anti-Semitism loses its meaning because you're labeling things that are obviously not anti-Semitic as anti-Semitic. And so people are going to stop using the word altogether, which is actually dangerous to Jews. So I would say that's the first basic problem, you know, with conflating anti-Semitism and and, and criticism of the state of Israel. So you're actually, I think, endangering Jews by by kind of watering down the label. Um, so, so anyways, go, go, go ahead. Yeah. You were, no, no, no. I wanted you to finish, finish. I want, cause I felt like you wanted that. You wanted to get that off your chest. You've been holding that for a long time. Um, so you wanted to get that off your chest. So I, I want to give you the opportunity to finish. Cause I want you to finish. Cause I know it's, it's frustrating to you is that, you know, you see it through the lens of hum- humanity. 
And it's yeah. frustrating that some of your you know brothers and sisters don't see it that way. They see it differently. And I know it's got to be frustrating. I know it's got to be struggled with your mental health. Um, have you, uh, I know you've been receiving like hate mail. Have you ever received any like death threats or anything like that for being outspoken? You know, I, I try and block out the hate as best I can. And so as soon as anyone writes something incendiary or hateful, I just block them immediately. I think the harder part for me is not so much anonymous messages from these anonymous accounts, many of whom are probably bots anyways. I think the more hurtful and harmful thing for me is actually when it comes from friends and family, right? Wow. People that I care deeply about. Um, and, and, and obviously I get plenty of that too. And those, those messages are much harder to deal with um, because they hit very close to home and it, it kind of makes you question everything and you, you start to lose friendships and you, you, you feel more distant from your family and, 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 and those are the tough messages. Definitely, definitely, man. But like I said, that's the important about this podcast is that I want this, this place to be vulnerable, share your story, because I think your story is important that, you know, you're standing your ground. Because I think of another person, I think of um, Norman Finkelstein, Finkelstein, who lost his tenure for standing up what he believed in. And there's other people like him, too. Look at what's happening now, um, both in Israel, Palestine, as well as in the United States and Canada and elsewhere, is I've, I, is really, really troubling. I mean, just in the past month, within uh, the state of Israel, dozens of students have been suspended from university for for Facebook and Instagram posts. In, in, in many cases, merely for expressing solidarity with the victims, with the 10,000 plus Palestinians who have been slaughtered in the past month, expressing solidarity with them has led to suspension. More than, I believe more than 80 Palestinians have been fired from their jobs in Israel-Palestine. Again, for social media posts, most of them totally benign, most of them expressing solidarity with victims. In some cases, posting Islamic messages of love totally, uh, you know, without even mentioning anything about the violence. So we're talking about a draconian uh, policy and a police state that is going at you. You saw videos in places like East Jerusalem of Israeli police walking into stores, grabbing cell phones of Palestinians saying, open up your phone, open up your Facebook or Instagram account. I want to see what you've liked. Forgetting about what you're posting. I want to see what posts you've liked. That is the level of, I would say, um, police... Uh, uh, brutality and, and 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 surveillance that is now happening in Israel and Palestine, and the same is happening in the United States. Um, maybe to to a lesser extent, but we have many many reported cases of people losing their jobs, of being fired, um, of feeling a pressure to toe a certain line, um, and it's it's incredibly troubling and incredibly worrying. Um, and you know, look, I, I've been very fortunate. I haven't had to deal with that. But what I will say, though, is after having just returned from a Middle East Studies conference over the past few days, I cannot tell you how many friends and how many colleagues have expressed to me tremendous gratitude that I'm speaking out because they don't feel like they're able to. Because being in a university environment, not having tenure, maybe you're a grad student, maybe you're a professor without tenure, you're a visiting assistant professor, you're a postdoc, whatever you are, Many, many people are worried and afraid to speak out. And in part because of, the, of what we just discussed, that they feel that they're going to be accused of being anti-Semitic 
You have no idea how many friends and how many colleagues have told me. I I agree with you. I want to be, be more outspoken than I am, but I'm afraid, especially as a Muslim or as an Arab or as a Palestinian, I am afraid that th I'm going to face retaliation if I speak out. And it's incredibly worrying. And, and, and it is. And going back to when you dehumanize the group, you have policies put in place. Because I don't know if you read just recently that uh, Republican, um, what's his name, Robert Zink proposed a bill. Um, I'll bring it up to you. Um, let's see. Boop. He proposed a bill basically banning uh, Palestinian refugees to America. I don't know if you saw that right here. I, I don't think I, I didn't see Ryan that. No. Zink, Ryan Zink yeah. introduced a bill Thursday that could ban Palestinians from entering the U.S. and possibly expel those who are already here. <laughs> Yeah. Zeng, who served as Secretary of Interior Department under former Depart uh, President Trump, introduced a legislation called Safeguarding Americas from Extremist Act. Well, look, my first reaction is we, we Trump already tried that. It was called the Muslim ban. And I believe within a week or two, yeah. it was it was deemed it was shot down by the courts or maybe it was a few weeks. But very I mean, because, you know, executive orders that violate the constitution or illegal and the courts are going to overrule them. Um, and that's exactly what happened with the Muslim ban. And so it was reframed as, you know, it, so they got rid of the Muslim language. I think they included, was it some African country outside of the Muslim world or whatever, just to try and reframe it. So it's not like obviously targeting a specific religious ethnic group. Um, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, this would be a, this, this law, if, if, even if it was adopted uh, tomorrow, would, would immediately be, be stricken down by the courts because you, to, to bar a, a certain ethnic religious group, a certain national group is illegal um, according to U.S. law, federal law. So, I mean, this is just I, I, aside from being xenophobic, um, aside from being racist, it's just unlawful. No, I agree. And the funny, the crazy thing about it is that most people can't tell the difference between uh, uh, some of uh, uh, a Jewish person and a person for Palestine. <laughs> if you think about it, there's no difference, really. If you think about it, <laughs> if you had them side to side, no one honestly couldn't tell the difference. Look, I think you know some of the most. Um, I, I would say some some of the most um, public protests for Palestine over the past month have come from Jews, have come from the Jewish community, have come from, you know, if not now, they took over, uh, what was it? They took over uh, some tr train station in New York. They took over the Statue of Liberty. They BC. took over train stations in Philadelphia and D.C. You know, Jews have been some of the most outspoken in terms of their protests uh, and in terms of taking over public squares and public spaces um, thus far. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's because Jews have experienced uh, uh, ethnic cleansing and genocide before. We know what it's like. Our grandfathers and grandmothers have told us the stories. You know, so we are aware of what oppression is like. And we don't stand for it, especially when it's coming from a state that claims to represent us. Mm. No, that's so, so, that's so true, man. Um, but... 
what's crazy too when you when we go back to the dehumanization of Palestinian is one thing is that um, to dehumanize a group, you have to erase any contribution that they made to that part of the world. Can you talk about some of the contribution? Because that's the one thing is when you look up, you don't you rarely hear of Palestinian artists, singers, poets, scholars around that time. Yeah, it's a great question. I think for many decades now, there has been a concerted effort to delete the idea of Palestine and the idea of the Palestinian people uh, <clears throat> from view. And you, you have, for many years now, for many decades now, this desire, um, again, to claim that the, the, there was no such thing as a Palestinian. This dates back to Goldemai year in the 1960s and 70s. You know, you had, and you had many scholars like Bernard Lewis, like Daniel Pipes, um, <clears throat> and even much more respectable scholars than that, historians, um, you know, pick up this, uh, uh, pick up this propaganda piece of, 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 I would say, Israeli propaganda, Zionist propaganda that basically says, look, these people, they didn't have a national identity. Um, they called themselves Arabs. In fact, they actually called themselves Syrians. They actually identified with Syria. Um, which is just a myth, um, and and so you know there's this there's this effort to undermine their connection to Palestine, to claim that oh they, they were just like all the other Arabs in all the other countries, that you know that in fact they actually came from the other countries that in fact there were no people here to begin with that they're just Egyptians and Syrian emigres emigres so you know this is one uh, way that uh, I think Palestinians are dehumanized is that their very identity is under threat, is constantly challenged. I think another very dehumanizing thing that that that's, I think, much more prevalent today, especially as you're seeing all these interviews of Palestinians on places like CNN uh, um, and other mainstream media outlets, is the very first question that every single Palestinian is asked when they get out. <laughs> do you condemn Hamas? It's like, well, did you ask you the did you ask the Israeli military, the Israeli general you had on this program immediately before me? Did you ask him to condemn the killing of 10,000, uh, 4,000 Palestinian kids in the past month? Yeah. Did you ask him to condemn uh, 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 what every single major human rights organization calls apartheid in the West Bank? Did you ask him, you know, to, to condemn Israel's five wars it's waged on Gaza over the past 16 years and the illegal blockade and siege that Israel has waged on Gaza for 16 years in which it's collectively punishing 2 million people, preventing 2 million innocent people from living normal lives, forcing 80% of them to live on food handouts, forcing 50% of them to forego medical care because they need enough money for food. Yeah. Did you ask the Israeli general to condemn that? Of course you didn't. But the Palestinian gets up and he or she is demanded to, to condemn Hamas. So it's just a double standard, which, again, dehumanizes Palestinians. It's like, should I condemn Hamas before or after you Israel drops a bomb on my house, kills my family, and destroys my home? Should I condemn Hamas before or after you wipe Gaza off the face of the earth? Where you create 1.5 million refugees. You know there are more refugees created in the past four weeks than... In many other wars, you know, you have, you know, more kids died and in, 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 have been have been slaughtered. More Gazan Palestinian kids have been slaughtered in the past month than in the entire Ukraine war over the past year and a half. So, you know, but again, that's another thing that, it, you know, Palestinians are dehumanized in.
they're now being dehumanized by preventing them from even being allowed to protest. You know, you see all these protests around the world. You have massive protests in Europe, in the United States, in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa. You know, in, 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 in Israel itself, it's illegal to protest in support of Gaza. You can't even you can't even express your political view in the form of a demonstration in a country that claims to be a democracy. It's shameful and it's dehumanizing. It is. And and it's frustrating and it it makes you like, just like think what can people do? Like it's kind of helpless when, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it's the people in power that makes those decisions, you know? Um, but in a let's say there was an opportunity where there's um, a chance there could be peace. What do you think would be the rest, the best remedy for the Palestinian people as well as the Jewish people of Israel? Yeah, so I think you know before that's a great question, and even before talking about peace, I think we need to first talk about ending war, which is first of all ending the aerial bombardment and the ground invasion of Gaza, which is leading to tremendous loss of life. And and it's also lifting the siege and blockade, uh, which is leading to people dying from dehydration in real time. I mean, I don't recall almost any other case in the world, even in some of the most horrific wars in Myanmar and in Eritrea, you know, in in <clears throat> in Ukraine, where people are dying of dehydration. I mean, do you, have you ever recalled that happening in recent memory? Literally, people do not have enough water to drink. And the okay, water so, that they have is it's is bad water. <laughs> and 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 then there's one. And Israel could could solve that problem tomorrow. It could solve it right now. It's just flipping a switch. Is just allow people access to fresh drinking water, and 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 so I think before and so I think before talking about solutions, it's like first of all we need to stop the violence on Gaza, and we need to end the siege and blockade on Gaza. We need to also end the violence in the West Bank, you know, um, and 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 end the siege and the blockade that's happening in in the West Bank. You know, people kind of all the attention is on Gaza for good reason, but. In the in the meantime, you know, there's been you know 128 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank in the past month. This was this was on the heels of the most violent year in Israel Palestine in 20 years. Even before October 7th, you had more than 120 Palestinians that were already killed in the occupied territories. So now we're we're talking 250 Palestinians killed, you know, in the occupied territories since the beginning. Sorry, in, in mostly in the West Bank since the beginning of the year. So that violence needs to end, you know? And then you have, in addition to that, something like almost 900 Palestinians have been ethnically cleansed from their homes in the past month. This was after a year in which I think almost 1,000 Palestinians had already been expelled from their homes in the West Bank in the past year, before October 7th. So now we're up to 2,000 Palestinians who have been forcibly uh, transferred from their homes by Israeli settlers, and by the uh, Israeli military in the West Bank. So that needs to end. So I think like, you know, even before we get to talking about solutions, it's like the aerial bombardment needs to end. The blockade and the siege need to end. The violence in the West Bank needs to end. The ethnic cleansing in the West Bank needs to end. So it's like those things need to end. 
And then you can begin to talk about how to return to a political process in which Palestinians have a say in their political future. Because that's under that's that's really the key, the key problem here, right? It's that for 75 years, you've denied people the right to have a say in their political future. First, by expelling them from the country and preventing them from returning and shooting at them if they try to return. That's pre preventing them from having a political say um, in, 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 in the country. And then for 56 years, uh, um, you, you prevented them from having a say in their uh, political future by imposing a brutal military occupation on them. Um, and so I think when thinking about solutions, the starting point needs to be Palestinians need to be at the table. You know, Palestinians need to have a say in their political future. And there were some attempts at that. You know, you had the Oslo process. You, you had Camp David. You had Taba. You had the Omert offer. But all of those offers and all of those processes all existed within a single framework. And it's very easy. People make this out to be super complicated. It's actually not that complicated. Here's how the Oslo process worked and all the negotiations since then. It's within a framework in which Israel has total control, in which Israel maintains security control of all the land between the river and the sea. That is unchallenged. Where, how can we allow Palestinians some amount of self-rule and some amount of autonomy within a framework within which Israel ultimately has veto power? And, and, and so whenever there, and so you know, if you understand the one, that one principle, you really understand the history of, of the peace process between Israel and the Palestinians for the past 30 years. It's, 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 it, it, in other words, whenever there was a question whether or not Israel would make a sacrifice or make a concession that meant some amount of risk to its own security in the, for the benefit of Palestinian democratization or Palestinian self-rule or Palestinian autonomy, Israel always chose its own security first. And so in a world where Israel is both party to the agreement, i.e. party to the Oslo agreement, but is also the enforcer of the agreement because it's the only sovereign between the river and the sea, guess what happens? Israel always is going to choose its own security over any kind of Palestinian self-rule. And so a process in which Palestinians are not subject to Israel's security needs, but are equal to Palestinians, that... That is a process that needs to take, that is the process that needs to take place where Palestinians are equals in the process, not subserving it to Israel's security needs. And the only way to ever make that happen is that you need a, a, a great power. And right now there's only one great power in the world. That's the United States of America. You need a great power to come in and apply real pressure on Israel. Meaning if you do not comply, if you not treat Palestinians equally and give them an equal seat at the table, we will and military aid. We will impose sanctions. We will prevent your leaders from ever traveling to the United States because they're under, because they are, uh, you know, we, we will, and then we will pursue Israeli and, and Hamas. We will pursue all war criminals at the ICC. And anyone who thinks they can commit war criminals will face accountability. So I think those are the things that need to happen. Now, I mean, you're probably at this point asking myself, well, that's all a pipe dream because, you know, we literally have a president who's obviously not applying pressure on Israel, who's coming to Israel's defense as it slaughters Palestinians indiscriminately. So we're a long way from there. But I think what we can do here in the United States and what we can do abroad is build coalitions to pressure our politicians to understand that the solution to this conflict is not more violence. It's the violence that led us down this path in the first place. The solution is nonviolence. It's that Israel needs to stop the bombs. Israel needs to stop ethnically cleansing Palestinians in the West Bank. And if we don't apply pressure on Israel to do those things,
then we're never going to come. We're never going to have peace in the Middle East. I truly agree with you because I think the two uh, state solution died when the extremists uh, assassinated Rabin. I think that was the end of the two state solution. And so I agree with you that at the end of the day, um, the Palestinians should have a say of the of 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 the political um, progression in the area. I think they should get restitution, especially for the for the Nakba um, and other atrocities. So they should get some form of restitution. Um, I think the the family should go should have the right to come back to their land, their home, if they want, if they choose to. And like I said, this is something easy. It's not hard. It's just do we have the political will and determination to make it happen? And so, you know, that's the big question. Um, so my last question to you, for a lot of people who don't know what the knockball is, talk about the knockball. Yeah, so we talked about it a bit, right? So it, it, the knockball refers, it, it's an Arabic word that means catastrophe. And it's used to refer to the 1948 war, during which something like 750,000 Palestinians were made refugees by the Zionist community in Palestine and then the state of Israel. Um, and so I think the, I think what I would say about the Nakba today is that many Palestinians, and I, I think rightly so, talk about an ongoing Nakba, that it wasn't a catastrophe that happened once. It wasn't a single expulsion in 1948. It's an ongoing series of expulsions. I mean, even immediately after the 1948 war in the nine months from December 1948, when the war ended until the following December. So for a full year after the war ended, Israel expelled Palestinians from another 36 Palestinian villages. And then it continued its policies in the 1970s and 80s of you know, deporting Palestinians that it, it perceived to be threats. And then it's continuing those policies today over the past, like we said, many over the past two years, you've had thousands of Palestinians be depopulated from their homes in the West Bank. And now you're seeing in Gaza, 1.5 million Palestinians have been displaced by this war. And the Israeli military put out a plan that got leaked a few, uh, a, a week or two ago in which it calls for the ethnic cleansing of 100% of all people in Gaza, pushing them all to Sinai. So we're talking about a second Nakba on our hands. And, and so I think, you know, really to understand the Nakba, you have to understand that it wasn't just a single ethnic cleansing operation in 1948, but it's been an ongoing campaign to depopulate uh, Israel and Palestine of its Palestinian native inhabitants. Definitely. And, um, and I think... Before I um, end this amazing conversation, I think of the story of I think the gentleman's name is Ahmad Alaki. I think he was he's a uh, Palestinian journalist who lost 23 member family members, and 14 of them were like nieces and nephews. And just the magnitude of that. Picture yourself in his position. Um, um, losing generations of generations. Basically, those kids are not going to graduate <laughs> from school, go to high school, go to college. They won't have their kids. Um, so, like, he's a rare few people that have that that name in his in his family. 
So if you're listening, I just want people just to recognize the impact that it's making on people's lives that live there or people that live abroad, but their families that's impacted every day. Like like the journalist who lost uh his uh his 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 child and his daughter. Uh, so these are like stories that is impacting people's lives every day. Um one UN um reporter said it's a child graveyard there. Yeah. And this is the reality that we live in. So if you get anything from this um, amazing conversation is that take the time and put yourself in their shoes and then hopefully that kind of changes your perspective on things. Because at the end of the day, everyone has the right to live and enjoy life. And right now they're not, they're just in a massive graveyard for uncertainty. Um, before we end, do you have any last words? Um, I think... I saw that statement, that UN statement that Gaza has become a, a graveyard of children and that broke my heart. And I just want to send my love and best wishes to everyone in Israel and Palestine praying for peace and safety and security. And just want to say thanks again so much for having me on. Um, and thanks for highlighting, um, uh, highlighting the dehumanization of the Palestinian people. Thank you for your time. Um, again, um, this will be on YouTube, uh, Spotify, iTunes, and then also, how can people find you? You can f find me on Twitter, my or X. My handle is underscore Zach Foster, or you can subscribe to my newsletter as well, which you can find on PalestineNexus.com. And all those links will be on the bottom. Again, this has been a great conversation. Good, uh, 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 just just a deep, important conversation that you know, we need more of this, but we need more action. So again, Zach, thank you again. And we're out. Peace.